Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal series, including five wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation Point: The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, and Susan's latest book, Down There, Sexual and Reproductive Health, The Wise Woman Way. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at the Wise Woman University. But you can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine, and welcome, Rebecca. Here we are in different time zones again. Yeah. <laughs> After our thing How's it going out in New York? I must say it was very disorienting to have the show in the middle of the afternoon. Mm-hmm. We did a wonderful Green Goddess Week. The Green Goddesses were just flying. Oh, I had such an intense and incredible time. And so I said, you know, well, Tuesday night. We'll do the blog talk show, but then I realized it's not Tuesday night at all. It was Tuesday afternoon. And so Yvette and I had to switch teaching spots because she usually works ah. with him with power shields in the afternoon, right? 
But here mm-hmm. I am taking up the afternoon with the blog talk show. So it's nice. Yeah. It's nice timing to be home for in the me. Dark. I can't imagine later in your time zone, like for my what? life, you know, but it works out great. It's like this kind of perfect timing. I get to pick my kids up from school and then still have time, a little time before I get hop on the radio. So it's a good time for me. <laughs> oh, goody, goody. I'm so glad. <clears throat> the uh, first day that I was on Vashon, a vet, I went out with a vet, Lewis, who does the Power Shields work with me at the Green Goddess Weeks. Um, we were at a bed and breakfast because the camp wasn't ready for us to move in yet. As a matter of fact, even when we went the next day, there were still like hundreds of uh, children having a good time at the camp. And we had to, to wait a bit until the children had managed to clear out. So we stayed at this wonderful, wonderful place. And instead of went, oh, you have a nice garden. And she said, garden, you want to see my garden? And she invited us into her garden. And she just started filling our arms with vegetables. And we made mm. dinner because, because where we were staying had a kitchen. It was like a little separate residence with a kitchen. We made dinner out of her garden. And then the next day, she had an apple orchard. She said, pick up anything on the ground. We must have left there, I don't know, 25 pounds of apples. Wow. Yes, we made applesauce for the green goddesses, and then we got there in the early afternoon. So I said to Yvette, let's go for a walk. Um, And we went out, and we walked, and we found three different varieties of hawthorn all in fruit. Mm. We found Mm -hmm. a big patch of watercress in a roadside ditch. We found chickweed and stinging nettle and horsetail and yellow dock and we just found richness and of course blackberries I should I even say blackberries we found blackberries of course we found blackberries <laughs> we had ourselves silly yeah, this- black- we made blackberry vinegar we threw blackberries in our salads we yes we found blackberries yum yeah yum. tons of blackberries out here on the west coast <laughs> Tons, tons. You you cannot walk anywhere without walking along blackberries, and they're and even the people out there who are used to it are saying it was such an abundant year for the berries. Yeah, yeah, even, yeah. Where I live too, there's a lot. There, it's some years, you know, they don't ripen in time, but this year they got really ripe and really a lot of them. Ripe. So many of them, mm-hmm. so, huge amounts of blackberries. And then all different kinds of hawthorn berries. And I ate, um, there were still a few salal berries to eat, although many of them were kind of wizened and graped on the, on the bushes. There were um, red currants and the elusive evergreen black currant. And I had mm. aronia berries and mahonia berries. Wow. Yeah. Such a great isn't it? <laughs> it's my favorite right. season for food. And, yeah. and all of those berries have had that really rich, dark, purple, almost black color that is so indicative of those anthocyanins, cyan blue, right? So those deep, deep blue hues, especially in the berries, really allow them to bring information into our bodies about how to stay healthy through the winter. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask, so you said that you were making medicine with Hawthorne this time of year. Do you, would you typically wait for there to be like a frost before you start using the berries? Because I found that to be like helpful. Although this year I seem like, it seems like the berries are ready earlier, even though like that frost hasn't set in. That's a really good answer and a really good question. Traditionally, many Native people who live where there's a frost prefer to get the fruit after it's frosted (coughs) if it stays, and by that I mean if it stays on the tree or the bush, and if it stays in a good state. Like if you waited to harvest salal berry until after the frost, you wouldn't get any. Mhm. Right. Don't think the black currants are sticking around. Mhm. So I think many of the berries that you really just have to say, this is the opportune moment. This is the opportune time. The berries are ripe, and I am here, and I have the time I'm picking. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, it, yes, it's somewhat different from people who are living every day in nature and can uh, have a more nuanced ability to do things um, more in coordination. But that's not to say that the Aboriginal people or Native people did that. I mean, their stories are filled, filled with stories of people who took a springtime walk and were killed by a blizzard that blew up that afternoon. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And, you know, just as the white people have stories of people who lay down to go to sleep and wake up a hundred years later. Okay. You never exactly know what you're going to get when you are out in nature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We had a great time at the uh, Pacific Women's Herbal Conference, the largest crowd ever. There were 111 women there, and I was moved to tears on Saturday afternoon. What Ecofunk chose for Saturday afternoon was something very new to me at a conference, Rather than put, you know, like your big speakers on Saturday afternoon, because that's when you want to attract people. She put all of the women of the conference first on Saturday. And she said, Saturday afternoon, what we're going to do is you're going to bring your best remedy or your most interesting remedy or the thing that you're proudest of. And we're going to share those with each other. Ooh, I like that. We're going to share how it came to be and why it came to be and how we made it and what was going on. So the story that moved me to tears was a story from a woman whose husband was told by his doctor that he was having heart problems. And even though he couldn't tell he was having heart problems, right, like he had high blood pressure and his cholesterol was high and so on and so forth. It wasn't like this man was going to his doctor complaining. His doctor just wasn't happy with his numbers. So he put him on a couple of antihypertension things and a statin drug and aspirin therapy. And she said to him, well, honey, you know, uh, I have herbs. You know, I know about herbs that can do things that, that would be just as good as this. He said, yeah, well, you know, you don't have any license 
and and like you don't know everything there is to know about herbs that he's a doctor so he knows if herbs were better the doctor would know that the herbs are better so I'm going to trust the doctor and I'm going to take these drugs because that's what the doctor is saying and she felt sad but this is something that we um, actually hear a lot and it's one of the reasons I don't do secondhand consultations because one very loving person can be very much interested in herbs, but the object of their love may not be. At any rate, what did she do? She did not despair. She went outside and she said, oh, I want to make a remedy for my husband's heart. What can I use? And the hawthorn had bright red haws. And she said, yes, hawthorn, hawthorn for the heart, Hawthorne for the aging heart. Hawthorne does everything we want for the heart. Hawthorne improves the heart's pumping capacity. It improves the, the uh, inner lining of the blood vessels. It's just a wonderful, wonderful herb. Moderates blood pressure, bringing it up or down as needed in the individual body. She said, yes, yes, the Hawthorne. I will put, I'll put Hawthorne berries in. And she walked a little more. And there was a rose. And she said... Oh, yes, I I love my husband so much. I'm going to put rose petals in here. And then she said her neighbor, this is in Washington, so I guess it's more moderate than here because the hibiscus would not survive where I am. But her neighbor had a hibiscus, and there was a red hibiscus flower. And uh, she said, I'm going to put that hibiscus flower in too. She went inside, and she started putting those in a jar, and she mixed glycerin with some water and started pouring that in the jar. And then the shisandra berries said, you need some of me. So she added a handful of shisandra berries and waited six weeks and made a glycerite, which I don't usually make because glycerin so sweet. It's just like set my teeth on edge sweet. And what is it that I do not really like to eat. I don't like bananas. Why? Because they're too sweet. I don't like raisins. Why? Because they're too sweet. I don't really like sweet things. So I don't make glycerides. So she made this because she wanted it to be sweet. She wanted it to be something that would be really, really attractive to him. And once it was ready, and she started just giving him a little bitty taste of it. Now then she says, oh, sure, honey, taste this, taste this. And then she was giving him some on a daily basis. And then, of course, he's saying, what is this? And she's saying, well, this is just a remedy I made to help the heart, and it's safe to take with your drugs. It's just fine. Don't worry about it. And after doing that more and more and more and more consistently for about a month, he said to her, you know what, honey? He said, I think your herbs work better than the drugs. I think I'm going to stop taking the drugs. Hmm. And herbal medicine is people's medicine. There it is, Susan, right in front of your face. Here is a woman without a license, without all the knowledge in the world, who is successfully taking care of the people she loves. Mm-hmm. She's not trying to be everything to everybody. She doesn't need to have a practice. She knows that she can go outside and say, help, and that Mm. the plants are going to respond to her. Wow. 
That sure made me feel good. Yeah, yeah. It was also I think wonderful. We can all relate with. We had a conference <laughs> right that served infusion at every meal. Oh yes. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> I, and I peeked in yeah, the kitchen. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I turned a couple people on. Very smart. She got Who? big Muslim bags. <clears throat> they would be. It would be like the size that you would like wash a couple of bras in. You know how they make Muslim bags to throw in the washer, so your stuff doesn't get all snarled mm-hmm. up. And she weighed out the herb for each pan that she had. She kept making infusion for 111 women every meal. Mm-hmm. So she had wow. a squadron of pans and herb weighed out, and in those Muslim bags. Right, so that if a pan, whatever amount the pan held, the the herb was weighed for that pan. So the volunteers could just bring the water to a boil, throw the herb in the bag in there, and then the next morning, take it out and squeeze it. It's pretty simple. That's good. (laughs) Pretty Infusion for a crowd. I certainly am talking today, uh, the beginning of our show away. So let's not forget to say that in an hour and 15 minutes, we are going to have an exciting guest at 9 o'clock, Marcy Goldman, the feminist health coach who teaches nourishing is flourishing, and she would like to talk to us about food skills, which she hopes that we will adopt instead of food obedience. Marcy Goldman at 9 o'clock. Make sure you are here. Meanwhile, do we have a few or a many people with questions? We have quite a few people waiting, and if you have a question for Susan, make sure to press 1 to speak with her. And I'm excited for Marcy's interview. looks really interesting. Our Me first too. Me guest, too. Our first caller is coming from the 650 area code. Oh, hi, Susan. Um, I have a question. I called several weeks ago, and I'm, I'm new to the wise woman way. And I, um, I had a thing on my face, and you said to make mallow oil. And so I've got some mallow collected, and I wasn't sure if I was supposed to use the whole plant, or the root included. Usually, mallow root is the part that's used. But the emollient constituents of the mallow are spread out throughout the entire plant. So one of the answers that you could create for yourself to your question is to make several small jars. Make some root oil. Make some leaf oil. Make some root and leaf oil together in the same jar and see what resonates with you. Oh, that's a great idea. Excellent. Yeah. The great thing I'll about that. the great thing about herbal medicine and working with these really safe and simple herbs is that you can't do it wrong. You can only awesome. do it better. Awesome. 
Yeah. I, I, I had another question about using St. John's wort for, um, for sun protection. Yes. I have some infused oil that I bought some of the stuff Rebecca made. Should I dilute that with like just another carrier oil, something that's good for the face and the body and, and just use it really liberally? Or do you use the stronger stuff? I wouldn't call it stronger. The hypericum mm-hmm. oil that I make is made by putting the fresh flowers or the fresh flowering tops into a jar, packing them in what I call the fairy mattress pack. They're not so tight that it makes a futon for the fairy, but there is not a lot of wiggle room either because we don't want her to fall through. And I fill that right Mm -hmm. up, whatever oil I'm using, and that's the carrier oil. So that could be coconut oil or olive oil or almond oil, you know, whatever is pleasing to you. And I let that sit for at least six weeks. And it should turn a noticeable bright red. Mm -hmm. Now, as the oil is infusing, it will ooze out. So it's good to set the jar of the infusing oil into a small bowl to catch those. You'd have to call it more than drips to catch all of that ooze. When it has sat for at least six weeks, then as I use it, I pour it out into whatever container I'm going to be using it from. Mm-hmm. So whether that's a glass bottle or whether that's a plastic bottle, I pour it into there, leaving the rest of the oil and the flowers just as they are. Oh, wow. And I put that, I would not say liberally on my body, but I would say <clears throat> thoroughly. I usually use olive oil. And I find that two drops will cover my entire face. All right. So you put it on your face, too. Good. I put it all over. I put it on my lips, my face, my arms. You know, usually one or two drops per arm. Mm -hmm. I will also admit that because I'm out in nature a lot, I do keep a lot of my skin covered. Mm Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, you're not going to find me in shorts and a tank top when I'm out in nature. Mm-hmm. I just do not want to provide so much target area. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I do a lot of. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a lot of area to cover. Okay, good. You know, I was collecting some Queen Anne's lace, and I know you said it's supposed to have that black thing in the center, but I'm in California. and not the lace, that. What I, I have always, never said that. Huh? Excuse me? I've never said such a thing. Oh, I thought it had like a black little thing where the um, where the where um, all the little flowers come out in the center. The little, okay, flowers, I miss, I, the little flowers don't come out from the center. This family used to be called the Umbella Ferri. It's mm-hmm. now called the APACA. It was called the Umbellaferi or the Umbrella family because if you start from the ground and allow your eye to travel up the stalk of anything in this family, it will come to a point where it comes out in rays from that stalk all the way around, like an umbrella, like the spokes of an umbrella. Oh, right. And if you mm-hmm. follow each mm-hmm. one of those up, you will find that each one of those also comes out into fewer and shorter 
sprays like an umbrella, and each one of those holds an individual flower. Okay. So there isn't any one point that the flowers come from. Mm-hmm. Like there is a rose, there's a rose bud, and that rose bud opens up and is one flower, but the Queen Anne's lace is what we would call a flower is actually many, 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 many flowers. Oh, okay. Actually, so that, there are actually okay. quite a few flowers that do that. Think of a clover blossom. We say, oh, that's a clover blossom. But no, it's clover blossoms. There's actually hundreds of blossoms in that clover mm-hmm. head. Or we mm-hmm. might say, that's a lovely spray of goldenrod, but if we really look at it, it's hundreds and hundreds of tiny little goldenrod flowers. Even a mm-hmm. sunflower, which is obviously and clearly just one flower, Susan. But just think, in the sunflower, each flower makes one seed. Now, how many flowers are there? Yeah. <laughs> so plants do this, and they will maximize the reproductive potential by clustering together lots of small flowers to make them look to mm-hmm. our eye like one larger flower. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, I was listening to one of your podcasts, and you had Jerry Brown who studies hallucinogens and Christianity, and it was just an amazing interpretation. And you talked about, I think it was pain relief for high CBD cannabis cold-infused oil. I wrote down what you said. But is there anywhere you could find out how to make that? You make that like any other infused oil. You take the fresh plant, fill a jar, pack it well, not too tight, not too loose, cover it with your carrier oil, whatever you want, coconut, almond, olive, whatever you like. Put a lid on it, put it in a small dish because it's going to ooze. Wait six weeks, you're ready to rock and roll. Yeah, and so most Or even more live in Washington or Oregon or California or Colorado or the growing number of states in the United States that realize that cannabis is good medicine. Mm-hmm. So all you have to do is just, do you put it in fresh? Because everyone talks about drying it and baking it and all that, and it seems, because you always said with infusions, put in the fresh plant. So do you put it in just, Raw, you know, like raw buds and stuff? To be clear, what I say is for nourishing herbal infusions, you always use the dried plant. So for infusions, you're using the dried plant. For oils, vinegars, and tinctures, you use the fresh plant. Wow. That is so different, and that sounds so much better. I certainly heard so. So much better. When I originally worked with herbs, people told me that... Herbal remedies were more belief than substance, and that if you didn't believe in them, they wouldn't work. And because I was using tinctures made of dried plants in high-proof alcohol, that was often true, or that people would have bad reactions to them. And because I was using teas with small amounts of herbs, I was also seeing very erratic results. Once I started working with the nourishing herbal infusions, and making the other preparations with fresh plant material, I really noticed a big difference in how people respond. Myself. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it just so much makes so much more sense. I'm so glad that I'm using your wise woman way. Thank you so much, Susan. Green blessings. Good night. Okay, green blessings. Thank you. All right, the next caller is coming from the 845 area code. Hi, Susan. Thank you so much for taking my call. I'll be very quick. I don't want to be greedy because I talked to you last week, and you advised me um, so simply to just eat more salad and fill my plate, and I just wanted to say thank you so much because it not only helped me, it helped my mom. So deep bows to you. Um, I had another question for you, though. Last year, you had advised me, um, and it really worked great, when I was having constant bladder, uh, urinary tract infections, it felt like, you told me to get my hands on some corn silk, and I did do that, <clears throat> and I made the tea with it, but I, I threw away the instructions, and I'm scared that I, I'm not doing it right. Could you uh, tell me again how to just That's do I do really that? Great- that's the great thing about working with these safe, nutritive, nutritive herbs. You can't do it wrong. Oh, good. You can't do it wrong. You got some corn silk. You got some hot water. You're in business. <laughs> okay. Right. And if you you can experiment, so you can oh. say, I'm going to make a you know a cup of corn silk tea and just let it brew ten minutes. Now I'm going to let this one brew for an hour. I'm going to let this brew and brew for four hours. I'm going to put more herb in this one. See what you like. See what your body responds to. Because you can't do it wrong, you can experiment safely. We're not talking about drugs. I see. We're talking Remember about I- we're talking about the difference between if somebody said, "Should I eat half a cup of rice or three quarters of a cup of rice?" Ah, uh, okay. All right. Sorry to be a stickler. No, I no. Just remembered- Is it okay oh, if I have broccoli today? I ate spinach yesterday. <laughs> the herbs okay. that we are talking about, the herbs that we are using, are foods. Corn silk, okay. after all, is the silk of an edible plant, right? Right. And you eat lots and lots of that corn. So whatever you do with the corn silk, it's going to work. Okay. I just thought maybe that there was a better way. I, the, the, stinkier, um, the stinkier plants... Like yarrow, that I remember, I feel like I remember you saying, I wrote it down somewhere, is not to brew that one very long. That was a quick brew, correct? Yes. Anything that has a strong smell, I usually make a tea of, and it's the nourishing herbs that I use for infusions. So I use herbs like stinging nettle and oat straw, comfrey Mm -hmm. and red clover, violet Mm -hmm. leaf, hibiscus, burdock and astragalus, mullen, cleavers, linden. Those are the kinds of herbs that I use for infusions. And I leave the chamomile and the mint and the thyme and the the rosemary and, as you say, the stinky herbs, right, the lemon balm, all of those. (laughs) I leave those for teas. Okay. You just added about five nourishing herbal infusions to my list there. Um, <laughs> so thank you, teacher, for not telling me all of those at at once at first. Because You're I'm doing them. <laughs> <laughs> you knew 
knew I couldn't, you knew only to put a little spoonful in my mouth and not a big, big spoonful. What, what but now I all? want all those other ones. So I'll have to write that down and make sure I, I try some of those. And thank you so much. I And I don't want to sound corny, but um, I I don't really trust doctors. You're, you're, I hate to say it, you're my doctor. So thank you. And I got your book and it's great. And I'll, I'll let someone else talk. Thank you again, Susan. Green blessings. You're welcome. Good you're t- Bye. Good night. The next caller is coming from the 413 area code. Hello? Hello? Hello, can you hear me? Hello? Yes, yes, I can hear you. Go right ahead. Hi. Hi. Awesome. Um, I have a question about lemon balm for cold sores. Okay. My... I have a three-year-old son who gets a cold sore on his lower lip every time he gets even a minor cold. And um, I feel like I've missed the boat this season for being able to make lemon balm oil. And I've heard from your podcast that it's one of the best things. For so where, where do you live that there is no more lemon balm now? Well, I, I live mean, in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, and it's really like a lemon balm there. What? Oh, I do have some. It just looks really dried now. Well, that's because it's been kind of dry there. But my my guess, I could be wrong because I don't live there. My guess, or I bet that, that Rebecca will help us out on this, is that if you cut that lemon balm back and watered it, that within three weeks there would be plenty of lemon balm to use to infuse an oil. What do you think, Rebecca? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, cut it back and water it, and that's... Even when I make an oil, I'll make it in stages. So, like, I'll cut some and then um, let it infuse for however many weeks, like four to six weeks. And then um, I'll make, like, another just to make a stronger oil because the volatile oils in that one, like, seem to dissipate. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so and then you make more lemon same, balm and pour that oil balm. over the new batch of lemon balm. Yeah, mm-hmm, exactly. Okay. And I'll do that three times. I think I, I think I learned that from you and the tincture as well. Yeah. Yes, which I learned from a woman in Austin. Which she, yeah. and she made lemon balm tincture that way because she really worked for a very difficult boss. So she and the lemon balm told her. She said, "No, no, I didn't make this up. The plant told me to do that." She. She was using lemon balm tincture to calm down, and when she went to decant it, it said, no, just pour this off and get rid of the plant material and put new plant material in the jar and pour pour the tincture right back over it. And the same thing when she did it the uh, second time, it said, go again. So it does. It makes a very interesting kind of um, tripling the holding of what's in now they your oil or your tincturing meeting or your vinegar can only hold so much. So I have always wondered, but I didn't question her about it, how much herb she used each time. This is one of the reasons why I encourage people to really pack their jar with plants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And most people, if they are packing their jar as full as I want it packed, or using at least twice, if not three times as much plant material as they've ever used before. Okay. So that makes me think that 
you don't have to go to the extra work of doing it again and again. Right. I see. Right. But again, experiment. What fun. You know, when, when you get done, you can pour the, some of it off to use immediately and then go on. I do also want to put in the word for hypericum in that it, it is also an excellent thing to counter cold sores. And that both of them are best applied either at the first sign of the cold sore or even as a lip balm preventatively. Okay. He definitely likes to uh, apply lip balm, so maybe I'll Goody. just make him. Um, maybe I'll make him a lip balm out of those oils. Yes, how easy, huh? Super easy. Um, Super. Okay, so uh, kind of along the same line, I have a bunch of anise hyssop in my garden. Oh, isn't that a beautiful fruit. smell? I do oh. love that smell. I love like everything about that plant. I've oh. been growing it for years. And I've only used it so far as a tea. And I'm just wondering, um, I, I can't, just can't seem to find a lot online about it. And, you know, the Internet's not the best source of information these days. But what? Well, let's start here. What family is it in? Uh, mint family. All right. What do we know about the mint family? Antispasmodic. Antispasmodic. Exactly especially in the digestive system, the respiratory system, and the reproductive system. Okay. And most mints are calmative. Yes. I definitely feel that when I drink tea of anisysip. Right? Don't you always just feel like, oh, anisysip, yes, well, I'll just sit here and watch the wallpaper. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Such a, which was just a little bit of honey. Oh. And, of course, you can also make an anisysip of honey just by harvesting it and um, pouring honey over it. I'm going to do that. And then you have instant tea all in the cold gray months. Yes. Can awesome. I also add that it makes... For me, like when I make a tincture of it, it um, is one of the best like cough suppress. Like if you're having like spasmodic coughing, it's I think one of the best uh, the best remedies for that. Oh, nice, nice. Mm-hmm. I just said the do other day, do? whatever happened to whorehound against cough? is a whorehound is an herb that has disappeared over the past fifty years from American herbalism. And Reader's Digest has 50 old-time cures, and sure enough, they have whorehound drops. Whorehound yeah, is another Yeah, I have because I grew some, but it doesn't have – Hyslop's such a nicer flavor. I know that whorehound works really well, but it's so bitter. <laughs> well, I was going to say, hyssop is such a nicer flavor, and of course that's why whorehound has fallen from flavor. From favor. Yuck, it's so bitter. Mm-hmm. It even makes motherwort <laughs> taste okay. I think motherwort tastes great, but <laughs> I have been known Rebecca, to make it from the early I'm spring sorry. leaves, but once it starts to flower, it gets really bitter. Mhm. I just think the tincture is good. I like it. I like that bitterness in it, but yeah. Oh no, I'm also <laughs> talking about the tincture. I'm, I'm, tincture is not bitter at all. I'm talking about 
We're talking about actually consuming the plant. Oh yeah. Or make make right or making a tea of it. No, I agree with you. Motherwort tincture tastes good. I think it tastes like chocolate. But mm. or whorehound is bitter, and so is motherwort. Even though they're mints, they can be bitter mints. Can I ask, Rebecca, do you use the flowers and leaves for your anise hyssop tincture? Yeah, I just cut off the whole um, tops of them, and like, you know, like two-thirds of the plant, and then make the tincture out of that. Okay, I'm going to do that too. It's a plant that really has everything going for it because it tastes great, smells great, looks beautiful, attracts butterflies. Yes, all those, yes. Easy to grow, right? Yeah. Tolerates poor soils, doesn't need a lot of water. Yeah, seeds itself for the next Seeds year. itself, right. I mean, hello. Yeah. Thanks Super. for calling and talking about anise hyssop. It's a wonderful plant. Yes, thank you. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Green blessings. Good night. The next caller is coming from the 703 area code. Hi, Susan. Um, how are you? And uh, thanks so much for taking my call. Um, I was wondering, too, about my three-year-old. Um, he's generally fairly healthy. Um, I, I'm very cautious about vaccines, um, to put it mildly, Um but he just started preschool a couple of days a week, and I want to help strengthen his immune system. Um, and I know um, elderberry syrup is really good, so I have some of that, but I wondered if there's anything else I could or should try. One day, an MD said to a bunch of herbalists, he said, you know, you all make yourself look like know-nothings when you talk about strengthening the immune system. Okay. And the immune system, he said, can't be strengthened. Hmm. The immune system, in simple words, consists of two branches connected like a seesaw. When one is up, the other's down. When one is down, the other's up. Those two parts are called... The innate part, which is the part that deals with bacteria, and that is helped, aided, and abetted by um, being born, mom not having drugs while you're being born, being born vaginally, uh, being breastfed, having skin-to-skin contact with your mom. All of those things feed and encourage the innate part of the immune system which basically is innate. It's already part of us. But mama's environment, on her breasts, in her armpits, on her skin, from her vagina, all of those things had a strong influence for all of us in the first periods of our life in terms of strengthening that part of our immune system. The other part of our immune system is the part of the immune system that deals with viruses and it has to learn how to do that Mm. and it learns how to do that virus by virus 
It's not like, okay, now I know how to deal with viruses because every virus is different. If all viruses were the same, we would just have a universal vaccination. We would vaccinate everybody against every viral disease, and it would be the end of AIDS and the end of yellow fever and the end of Ebola and the end of the flu and the end of the cold. But we can't do that because there are thousands, if not tens or hundreds of thousands, of different viruses that cause disease. There are certainly millions of different viruses. You may have heard that there's more bacteria in your body than there are cells, but there are, at the same time, more viruses in your body than there are bacteria. If there's 10 times more bacteria than cells, then there's 10 times more viruses than bacteria. And the way this this works, of course, is that these are on a decreasing level of scale. Bacteria are far, far smaller than cells, and viruses are far, far, far smaller than bacteria. So, here's how it goes. You're going along just fine, and suddenly, one of these viruses is in your body. And your body says, what? Now, first of all, many viruses are extremely good at screening themselves because they are so small. The body may not see them, and they manage to get into the cell itself. And then they go into the DNA of the cell, and they start hijacking the DNA of the cell, to have that cell make not new cells, but make virus, viral particles. And so a virus, which doesn't have any DNA, has to get the cells of your body to use their DNA to replicate it. And it's not until that happens and it starts being replicated that your body even has a chance, usually, to tell that a virus is really there. At this point, your body says, all right, let me check the database. Have we seen this virus before? Oh, we've seen this virus before. This is how you kill this virus. Bam, it kills the virus. So somebody has a tetanus shot, and they get the tetanus virus in their bloodstream. Their body says, tetanus right here. This is how you kill it, because it's been trained to do that. That's what makes your immune system strong, is getting vaccinations and immunizations. Not getting vaccinations and immunizations makes your immune system weak. Interesting. When I was talking about this to a class, somebody in class had a very good question. She said, okay, so if it's not in the database and your immune system doesn't know how to deal with it, what happens? What happens is that messenger molecules are sent out, and they smell and taste and measure the virus, and then they go back to data central, and they say, boop, 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 tastes like this, boop, 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 looks like this, boop, 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 smells like this, boop, 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 and the mad scientists in the database get to work, oh, let's try this, 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 let's try this until they finally hit upon something that actually kills the virus. And she said to me, wow, how long does that take? And I said, I have no idea. And there was a virologist in the group who stood up and said, it depends on the virus, but in really dangerous viruses, it takes 
long enough for you to die before your body figures it out. I teach in communities where no one immunizes or vaccinates. I teach in communities where children die of preventable diseases because their immune systems can't figure out in time how to deal with whooping cough or scarlet fever. I deal with young women whose mothers didn't immunize them and now they're pregnant and they got chickenpox or measles and they have deformed babies. This is not a kindness that we do to any child to not immunize them. Well, I don't not totally immunize. I just don't do it as fast as they say and all that. You know, not the standard. I understand. I understand. I didn't when you said to say the least. To say the least sounds like, a, you know, a real dug-in person who's very totally anti, right? Well, it's more of the stuff that goes with it, um, you know, mercury and formaldehyde and aluminum, you know, and plus it's just so much. Like when I was a little kid and vaccinated, you know, it was people were getting a lot less. I mean, that's, you know, I don't, we don't need to start that big conversation, but, you know, information, I generally. Information is extremely outdated. Okay. There has not been any Thermosol, the mercury derivative in any vaccination in over 10 years. Huh, interesting. You get more lead eating organic produce, which may have been grown on a farm with tractors that run leaded gasoline, than you could ever get from the tiny amount of vaccine. Again, I have no objection to your picking and choosing which and at what schedule, and not going by their schedule. That seems absolutely sane and absolutely fine to me. But what I'm saying is that those vaccinations strengthen a child's immune system. And the reactions are usually the reactions of a strengthened immune system, especially reactions at the site. So that the immune system says, something just happened here. We're going to fight against it. That's a stronger immune system when we get that kind of reaction, right? Mm. So we also maybe don't want to have a stronger immune system because the stronger immune system is more reactive. In the flu epidemic of 19, what, 1917, something like that, um, the people who were most likely to die were the ones who had the strongest immune systems. Because the virus or the viruses, there are thousands of them that cause flu in humans, don't actually have any mechanism to kill at all. What kills you when you get the flu, if you're going to die of the flu, is the strength of your immune system. Because your immune system's reaction to the flu is to give you a fever and make you sweat. And if you get hot enough, you can die. And if you sweat too much, you can die. Crazy. So, strengthening your son's immune system may not be exactly the way you want to word it. 
Okay. I, I like the word nourish. Mm. Nourish is pretty open-ended. If I nourish the immune system, then part of me is bowing to the wisdom of the immune system itself, isn't it? Mm. It's saying, you know how to do your job. Let me provide these things which I think you might need. And I think you're doing that. You're providing a loving environment. You are providing a broad-based diet that includes gifts of the sea, gifts of the animals, and gifts of the land. You are making sure that your child is not drinking a lot of fruit juice, but offering infusion and flavored waters instead. These are very simple things that we can all do as parents. I often key is that one of the most important things that we have to do as parents is that we have to insist that our children eat strange foods because children are born with food phobias, as they should be, as they should be. Children should be born afraid to try putting new foods in their mouths. So one of our important parental jobs is to counter and to say, you eat with us these strange, unusual, colorful, fun foods. I always loved when my son-in-law said of his daughter that at the age of two, she had a better palate and perhaps had eaten more different foods than most of his students at the Culinary Institute who were ten times her age. When my daughter was four and we were in Paris, she totally wowed them when we would go into restaurants and she would look, you know, at the garçon in the eye and she would say, at four, escargot, see who play. Uh-huh. And it would bring down the house. This is a four-year-old American girl ordering snails. Mm-hmm. I haven't even eaten that. it's just an excuse for garlic and butter just like corn is just an excuse for butter Mm. corn is the American excuse nails are the French excuse what can we say that's great All right. thank you so much for calling taking care of what you you needed to hear Rebecca said there were a lot of people and we're uh, moving in to the last half hour of the show, so I want to make sure everybody gets a chance tonight. Okay. I actually, I muted her, but um, the next caller is coming from the 207 area code. Oh, good evening, Susan. Thank you for taking Hi. my call. Hi. So I routinely visit a dentist um, to have uh, regular cleaning of my teeth. I do not have any particular problems, Um, but um, like I've noticed with previous dentists, uh, the dentist I have now tries to strong arm me into having um, routine full mouth x-rays. They prefer for me to have them once a year, but they they have a a form you sign when you refuse. So you do think, because I think it's unnecessary and a lot of radiation, but I was hoping to get your thoughts. 
they give me a form to sign because I refuse. Now, I will say, good to know. I will say that my mouth is in good health. So I don't expect from year to year that we're going to see a sudden change in my teeth. When I go to get my teeth cleaned, the dentist looks at my teeth very carefully. If she sees or I feel anything, we can certainly act on that. Basically, what we're looking at here is what I call insurance care as opposed to health care. <laughs> I do have very good dental insurance. Uh, the cost of the x-rays does not have anything to do with my... No, no, that's, what, that's exactly what I mean. That is exactly what I mean. Those x-rays are being taken because the insurance demands it, and that's why they make it so that there's no cost. Because they want to have x-rays so that if you sue, they can prove you're wrong. Oh, okay. Good to I know. mean by insurance care. Gotcha. It's not care of the insurance. It's how insurance wants medicine to be practiced. Oh, so I should really be displeased with the insurance companies more so than my dentist. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you have to sign a form. You can't just say no thank you. You have to sign a legal form saying I give up my right to sue because I won't allow these x-rays. Perfect. Yeah, that's And so you will see exactly why they're doing it. Good to know. Yes, thank right. you so much. I'm glad yeah. I called you. You say no I don't I want x-rays. And then you wind up having to have a root canal, and you say, you should have seen that and prevented that before it happened. You can't sue. Somebody just told me, this is the craziest thing that I've heard since, somebody sued uh, a depilatory cream company because he used it to remove his pubic hair, and it made him sterile. I know, right? And he sued and won, even though it says on there, do not use on pubic hair. Anyhow, this woman is suing a company because her job was to go through pictures that had been submitted or videos that had been submitted to see if they were too gross for the public and to decide which ones should be con- you know, conveyed to the trash bins of wherever. And which could be allowed. Mm-hmm. And so now she's suing for trauma from doing this job. Oh, wow. So the next thing is a doctor is going to sue a patient. He says, my goodness, I was going to operate on you for cancer. When I opened you up, there was cancer everywhere. And I am so traumatized by this that you have to pay me a million dollars. If we do live in a very litigious culture, that's true. It's a shame. So you need to know where you're at. If you feel that you're in good health and that you're in touch with yourself, then yearly x-rays, I do not believe, are going to be necessary for you. Again, we must always remember that health care is geared to the lowest common denominator. Your average American, the person who eats 300 pounds of sugar a year and watches four hours of television a day. 
I don't do either of those. And thanks to you, I drink nourishing herbal infusions and have added grain back to my diet. I'm a former uh, low-carb dieter before I uh, started listening to you several years ago. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I hope that those changes have been beneficial to you. Oh, so much. So much. Yes. Great. And I must say that through your show, I've been able to learn to make uh, remedies. Um, So many years ago, I had a medical, an ill-advised medical procedure and am permanently disabled because of it. So for a long time, I had a deep distrust and fear of doctors, but nothing to fill that gap. And the information that you so generously shared for free, I do have your books, but, you know, the blog talk is free, has really filled that gap for me. Herbal medicine as people's medicine, the medicine that we can use to take care of ourselves and our loved ones. It doesn't replace modern medicine. There's certainly wonderful places for that. As I said this weekend, I don't have any herbs that will repair a cleft palate. No, I hear what you're. I hear what you're saying. I still do have a physician, and you know, yeah. received some care, but many yeah. things I'm now able to take care of on my own. And listening to your show has stopped me from uh, submitting to an annual mammogram, which I'm very happy about. I was so annoyed the other day. I got this big color flyer in the mail and said, "Protect your health." Schedule your mammogram now. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. First, they can try to convince me it's preventative medicine, and now they're trying to tell me that radiation is protecting me? Yeah. Mary Curry would probably disagree, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your call. Thank you so much. Good night. Green blessings. Green blessings. The next caller is coming from the 805 area code. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Um, I was just calling because I had a question about um, anxiety and was hoping I could get some advice with just kind of getting comfortable and getting motivated, I guess, to go out into society when I feel um, just nervous, I guess, and kind of just comfortable being by myself. And I guess I just have problems with like, yeah, just anxiety in general. Sometimes I'm just kind of um, nervous around people just walking down the street and with their attention on me, I'm very sensitive to that. And uh, I tried lots of tools uh, for this sensitivity, you know, like wrapping myself in light or imagining that just being really grounded or trying to be really grounded on my own anyway, and just trying to um, deal with, Well, I have something totally different to tell you. Okay. All those people out there, Mm -hmm. they don't care about you at all. 
They're not looking at you. They're not thinking about you. Truly, they could care less. Just like you, they are wrapped up in themselves. You're not thinking about them, are you? No. Are you walking down the street thinking about that person and that person and that person? No, you're thinking about yourself, and that's what they're doing too. Okay. One of my teachers made me go to Grand Central Station, take off my clothes, and put on an entirely different outfit in the middle of Grand Central Station. And you know what? Nobody stopped. (laughs) Nobody said anything. Nobody noticed. So what we're really talking about here, if you'll forgive me, is your overriding ego that the whole world is looking at you, when in fact it's not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wrapping yourself in light is just more ego. It's not a remedy. It's a worsening. It's a worsening of your belief that everybody is paying attention to you when they're not. Okay. You know, even if a big movie star goes out to eat. Everybody's not paying attention to them, are they? No. I don't know why I feel like that. I'm telling you, you don't need to know why. You just need to say, let me get my ego in check here. Mm -hmm. And stop making so much of myself. Let me walk down the street like everybody else thinking my thoughts because I know everybody else is thinking their thoughts. Mm-hmm. Unless, of course, I'm wrong and you are walking down the street going, well, she's too fat. God, he's ugly. Well, I would have plastic surgery if I look like that. If that's what you're doing, then maybe other people are doing that to you because what we put out comes back to us. But you don't sound like the kind of person who does that. No, I I try not to, although I have been finding myself overly critical lately, which is something I'm working on, or maybe I'm just... Um, no, it's not, aware a of, that I've been not at all. It's a matter of saying, oh, look at how critical I am. No wonder I'm shy in public. I think everybody is as critical as I am. Mm-hmm. And how do you change thinking that other people are critical? You simply say, I have better things to think about. And then... Yeah. You will need better things to think about. Then you will say, oh, I see. I have to do things so that I'm not thinking about other people. Thinking about other people and being critical of other people is simply a symptom of not having enough life of your own, huh? Yeah. So you get a life of your own, and the truth of the matter is, even if. Every one of those people was thinking, oh, whoa, something bad about you. It wouldn't matter in the least. It would not affect you. It would not affect your life. Because this is not a popularity contest. It's your life. (laughs) Yeah. And you, every night... Go to sleep with you and what you've done. Not what anybody else has thought about what you've done, but what you think about what you've done. And if you go to bed happy, then you are happy. And it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about what you've done 
Really? Does it? No. I, I, I don't know why I let that get to me. I think it's... Again, who cares also- why? Nobody cares why. Why is just nailing your foot to the ground? Why is adding more to the thing? We, we don't care why. Why do you do it? Well, because you do it. Okay. What's the way out? The way out is to say, ah, I want an interesting life, and they don't care, and I don't care. They don't care Mm -hmm. what I do, and I don't care what they think. So I'm going to do what I want to have that interesting life that I want. A woman once said to me, well, I would really like to do that. But if I did that, so-and-so might see me doing that. And so-and-so is good friends with this and that. And this and that knows my aunt. They work at the same office. And if so, if so-and-so saw me doing it, she might tell this and that. And this and that might mention it to my aunt who would mention it to my mother, and my mother would be very upset, so I can't do that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I walked into into a building three days ago at camp where I was teaching, and the woman said to me, look, you're barefoot. I'd love to be barefoot. And I said, why aren't you? And she said, oh, I'm afraid I'd hurt my feet on the stones. And she looked down and she said, I'm in an office, aren't I? Nobody was making her wear shoes. She worked for the camp. (laughs) Mm -hmm. She could go barefoot. I was going barefoot. What do we stop ourselves from doing? Because we think other people will think we're weird. My teachers have always encouraged me to put more of myself out and to be willing to get the pie in the face. Yes, I... I You know, what's his name who's pretending to be the president? He just got a pie in the face, didn't he? Everybody laughed at him, huh? (laughs) You think it matters in the least? You think he's going to change anything because the whole United Nations laughed in his face? Nah. So, kind of, you know, perverse as it is, he's a fairly good example of not caring what other people are thinking about you. Yeah, I need to get back to that. I used to be good at it in high school. I didn't care at all. And then over the years, I just got self-conscious, I guess, being myself. Um, Meanwhile, I think think you've heard us talk about motherwort. I think you've heard us talk about lemon balm. I think you've heard us (laughs) talk about lavender. Motherwort, Leonurus cardiaca. The tincture of the fresh plant put up in 100 proof vodka, and um, Rebecca has an Etsy place where you can get it, and White Feather has Catskill Mountain Herbals where you can get it. A lot of people find that really relieves anxiety. Uh, several years ago, I had an apprentice who was so anxious 
that it, in the beginning weeks of her apprenticeship, she literally walked around with a bottle of motherwort tincture in her pocket so that she could take it, you know, every five or ten minutes if she felt that she needed to. And she yeah. she is now um, been asked to be the manager at the store where she works. <laughs> Because she is so confident, and she has such an ease and a steadiness to her. And she didn't do that by berating herself or asking herself why. She did that by using motherwort and saying, okay, how do I want to be? How am I going to be? And doing that, right? Yeah. Yeah, you don't spend your time. (laughs) In guilt and shame and blame. You spend your time on where you're going and what you're going to do. And you use plants like motherwort or lemon balm. We talked about lemon balm tincture doing the same thing. I talked about the woman who worked with a terrible boss. And so she used lemon balm tincture and she made it in the lemon balm, said, I'm not strong enough, take this tincture, pour it over more lemon balm. And she waited another six weeks. And then that lemon balm tincture said, no, I'm still not strong enough, take this tincture and pour it over fresh lemon balm again. And so she had a triple lemon balm tincture. And she said, she was Wonder Woman when she took that tincture. There was nothing her boss could do that would throw her in the least. That's wonderful. Right. And, of course, the lavender, even lavender tea or lavender sachet. What did we give the ladies who think it? Lavender. Okay. Okay. So find a plant. That can help you. You don't need all of them. Oat straw really strengthens the ability of the nerves to take it. I worked with a woman in a store with a bell on the door, and every time somebody came in the store, the bell would go bing and bing, which was very nice. It was a little actual bell. It wasn't like a mechanical noise. I really, really liked it. But this woman I was working with, she would jump. She would go into spasm every time this bell would ring. And, of course, because she did that, I would, too. And it was really hard on my adrenals, and I didn't like it. And so I started bringing a straw infusion to work with me and then sharing a cup of it with her. I didn't work full-time. So she was getting, I don't know, maybe two or three cups of oat straw infusion a week. But within a month, you probably could have set a bomb off under that woman, and she wouldn't have flinched. (laughs) That's cool. Yeah, I have been getting a little bit stronger through just definitely keeping up on my infusions and with bone broth and stuff. So I have more, I don't feel so sensitive to people uh, as much as I did, I guess, but anything that I What I am add, saying is you are not sensitive in the least. <laughs> okay. You're making it up. You're not sensitive to people. They're not paying attention to you. You're making that up. You may be a sensitive person, but you are not sensitive to what others are putting out. That's simply untrue. Okay, let me see. So before you started telling yourself the story that you were sensitive to what people were thinking, which is a story, it's not so. You don't know what they're thinking. We talked about this at the Green Goddess Week on Vashon Island about um, false compassion. There was a bird that flew into the window where we were dining, and it killed itself. And one of the women went out, and she held it, as it breathed its last, and she came in, and she was sitting at dinner crying and crying. And I love when women cry. We have so much 
that moves us. Our tears are so sacred. And I, I said to her, um, this is so beautiful. She said, no, it's not. It's so awful. That poor bird, I feel so much compassion for it. And all the pain and the suffering and the torture that it went through. And I said, just stop right there. That is a total projection. You don't know that in the least. You're not inside that bird. That bird might have done that on purpose. The bird might have gone, goodbye, cruel life. You know, something terrible has happened, and bam, I'm flying into this window and ending it. Or that bird might have, hitting the window, felt transported into ecstasy. You don't know what that bird felt, and pretending that you do is unfair to the bird and gives you a false perspective on life. And this is what I see that most people are doing when they're making flower essences. The flower essences have nothing to do with being with the plant or part of the plant or listening to the plant or getting into the plant spirit, but they are pure projections. I see a red flower. To me, red is passion. Therefore, this flower is about passion. Therefore, this flower is going to tell me about passion. No, that's a pure projection. And that's what you're doing. You're projecting your own stories out onto the world. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not a bad thing to do. It's the way we all are. But consciousness allows us to see that and then to say, do I want to continue telling myself the story that I am sensitive to other people being critical of me when the fact of the matter is this isn't happening at all? Okay. Yeah, better... that's something to kind of go backwards with. <laughs> yeah, just find a better story. Because the fact mm-hmm. of the matter is, you're not sensitive to that. Because that's not happening. You may be sensitive in some beautiful, beautiful ways. I certainly would never deny that. But sensitive to what others are thinking or feeling, probably not. Mm-hmm. We're very individual, and what can really upset somebody makes somebody else really happy. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Green blessings. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. Looks like we have two more questions to be answered before Marcy comes on. Okay. All right, the next caller is coming from the 718 area code. Hi, Susan. Um, I woke up in the morning, like 3 o'clock in the morning, with like almost like a lump in my throat when I swallow. It's painful. And um, I was feeling nauseous, and for lack of better words, kind of like a sinus, a sinus headache. Um, I took echinacea throughout the day helped a little bit but I don't know if maybe I just need to take more if there's anything else I could take to make myself feel better and like you know kind of started to to sneeze like I feel like a, getting a cold I'm not sure what's really going on if it's the flu or something else if you can just enlighten me a little bit and try to um, I guess I don't know what I'm what, what other herb would be helpful So 
So you think you might have the flu? Uh, possibly, yeah. Uh-huh. Or you might have a cold? Um, when I get a cold, I usually don't have, you know, pain in my throat when I swallow and feel like a lump and things like looked, that. And have you looked in your throat? Do you see any white patches in your throat? So, I'm visually impaired, so I really can't see anything. I totally understand. Yeah. The very first thing that I think of when there's a sore throat is honey. Okay. The second thing that I think of is sage. And if I have sage honey on hand, that's for sure what I think of. Okay. And if I have sage honey, then I take a spoonful of the sage and the honey, not just the honey, but the sage that's in the honey, put it in a cup, and Mm -hmm. pour boiling water over it, and... uh, it's instantly ready to drink. As soon as the water is cool enough to drink it, you can drink it. You don't have to wait at all. Okay. That combination of the sage and the honey, or make a cup of sage tea and add some honey to it, um, is improved if you want to add some fresh lemon to it. Okay, fresh lemon. After the Moon Lodge, it was a cold night on the Russian Island when we had the Moon Lodge. And I said to Eagle Fang, I said, I think the women are going to want something hot to drink. After the Moon Lodge, is there any tea? And they, we were moving from uh, one place to another, and there wasn't a lot of infusion to share at that point. Um, we just, just started kind of getting started with the uh, Green Goddess Week. It was our first night, in fact, of the Green Goddess Week. And so what Eagle Fung left for us was a pan of water on a low fire that was just just off the boil, nice big pan of really hot water, fresh lemons to cut, and a jar of honey. And we all made honey lemon tea. And I have to say, it's one of my favorites. And so soothing to the throat. And then, of course, if you have sage or even rosemary or thyme. When I was horseback riding in Provence, what they really liked to help deal with sore throats was thyme. Thyme tea or thyme honey. Rosemary has been used in the same way. Oh, those wonderful mints. Okay, I'm going to try that. Um if, like, Elder, if, elderberry is a very strong antiviral, and it's one of those plants that is so safe that people use elderberry as a foodstuff. So mm-hmm. if you take elderberry tincture or in any other form because you think you have a flu, and you don't, you haven't done yourself any harm at all. Okay. Um, should I continue also taking the echinacea? Or, um, well, echinacea is not an antiviral. It's an antibacterial. Okay. And I was oh, talking... Okay about the two arms of the immune system when there's a virus infection because the part of the body that deals with bacteria is not working as well. A viral infection is often followed by a bacterial infection. Oh, okay. So the echinacea doesn't fight the viral infection, but it helps to prevent the bacterial infection that might follow. Okay. All right. Is it like um, if I'm taking elderberry... Is it okay to take at the like the same time in the sense um, to take echinacea? One doesn't undo the other. Um, if I were to eat a peach after I ate grapes, they would undo each other, right? Um, no, I don't think so. I just know one. I ate a tomato and then I ate a green bean. They would undo each other, yes. No. We're not uh, talking about drugs. 
Right. And I'm just, I think I remember. About when... plants. Right. We're talking about plants that are safe enough to consume. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. I appreciate that. And then I just want to ask you, which herb would be helpful um, if I feel like it's not so much constipation, but when I do move my bowels, for some reason I need to put like, you know, pressure and it's bothering me. There's a variety of things that might be going on. The very mm-hmm. first woman um, early on the show, we, she and I had talked about that, and I suggested that she eat a plate full of salad with at least two tablespoons of olive oil on it on a daily basis. Okay. And she called to say that she had done that for this past week and that it was working brilliantly. Okay, I could I could add that. That, that would be something I would want to consider. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Green blessings. Green blessings. Okay, the last caller here before Marcy comes on is coming from the 252 area code. Hello. Hello. You kind hi of there quiet? in the 252? Sounds like nobody is there. Can you hear me now? Hello? Can you hear me? Yes, yes, we can hear you now. Good. Hi. Sorry, I'm having a little trouble with electricity right now. I'm calling from the epicenter of Hurricane Florence. I'm in New Bern where the man pretending to be president showed up last week. Um, And I'm (laughs) – I I, I like that line. That was good. Um, (laughs) So um, I've lost – everything. We were inundated with floodwaters and I'm really in the heart of where it happened. And I am trying to figure out how to stay healthy through this. Um, I've lost all of the gardens. I've lost the bees. I've lost the pecan trees. I've lost everything in my house. I um, I, I have a disabled husband and, and I have to stay well and I am physically well. Um, but so much has changed so fast and there's so much to cope with. Um, I just, I don't know what the best ally would be right now. I'm not exactly sure how far back to start. So if I'm starting too far back, please forgive me. Number one priority is that you make sure that you have a way to get potable water. Water's okay. We're good. All right. What kills most people in the aftermath of natural disasters is bacteria in the water. So one emergency supply that I think is excellent to have on hand is some kind of water filter. But you are okay on water. Our city water's potable. We're lucky to have that. We have gas and water, but the water that came into our home is is amazing and now we're cleaning everything out so i think there is a concern about health and wellness with coping with all of this soggy stuff now we're 12 days into it and you can only imagine how much is growing and smelling and it's so you what what you're doing now is removal of sodden materials Yes. yes and this has to be done on a room by room basis yeah and and it's everything. I mean, I can't start reconstruction until everything. No, I totally, everything. I totally understand. This is the image that's coming to me. Perhaps it will be of help and perhaps not. I was called by my friend Amy, and she said, Susan, um, my 
she's an orchardist, and she said, my father planted a chemically dependent orchard. And each orchardist, of course, as the trees age, cuts down trees and replaces them with newer varieties or different trees or some different, you know, instead of apples, pears or whatever. She said, and it's time for this orchard to come down, this chemically dependent orchard. I want your help in bringing it down because it's going to be a problem. And when I got there, I saw what the problem was. And the problem was that these trees that she was going to cut down were completely covered in the most massive poison ivy vines I've ever seen. The poison ivy vines were from the mass of my forearm to the mass of my thigh, just covering these trees. And so we did a ceremony with the poison ivy. We said, hey, poison ivy, here's the way it is. We are going to cut down these trees. These trees are chemically dependent. We know that you are an earth-healing plant, and we know that you are here to do your best to make the best of a very bad situation. And right now we want you to let us do it and to not harm us while we are doing it. And I have the sense of these floodwaters as in some ineffable way being a force like those poison ivy vines were, that to us it seems so dangerous and so terrible. But if we can just acknowledge that nonetheless it's needed and useful, but ask, let us do the work and protect us while we're doing it. Not a single one of us got any poison ivy rash. There were four of us with chainsaws cutting down these trees all day long. It was a big, massive undertaking. And none of us got any poison ivy. The people who came the next day with the trucks to haul the trees away were covered in poison ivy from head to toe. Yeah, and there are a lot of those people here right now because things change when something like this happens and people... Exactly. So I think you can ask the water itself to protect you while you finish doing what it started. Okay. So just be a part of this and do it. Yes. Okay. It's a really, really difficult thing. Well, there's, I'm trying to find things that are living. That's where I'm, I'm trying to focus on the things that survived, but a lot of things didn't make it. You know, the worms made it and the bees didn't. And, you know, the chickens made it. I brought them into the attic with me and... (laughs) So we, we've had quite an adventure, and when you come down after something like that, it was brackish water, and everything is dead. I missed my flight. Wound up having to take a flight to Newark. Got an Uber driver to drive me home from Newark, and he proceeded to tell me that he had been a trucker three months ago, and that he was sleeping in his rig when he woke up to the rig being on fire. Oh, my God. And that 20% of his body had third-degree burns, and that his message... And the reason he was driving an Uber car is he wanted everyone to know there is no tomorrow. Tell the people you love that you love them today, he said. And that sounds just like what you're doing. Thank you. Well, let's hope it goes that way. There will be days when it feels like it isn't, but more days when it is. Then it is. All right. Green blessing. Thank you, and to you. Have a good rest of the evening. 
Yes, and the rest of our evening is going to be with Marcy Goldman, a feminist health coach. She helps people recover from restrictive diets, food sensitivities, and digestive distress, which is rampant upon the land. Marcy Goldman says nourishing is flourishing, and she wants to teach us about food skills, not food obedience. Her work combines wise woman tradition, nutrition, recovery, and herbal medicine. It's a stellar combination. She's been working one-on-one in leading group programs for over 20 years. Marcy graduated from the Institute for Integrative Nutrition as a board-certified health coach in 1999 after completing a shamanic herbal apprenticeship in 1998 with me. Before that, she received her bachelor's in women's studies at the University of Colorado in Boulder, but most recently, Marcy is certified addiction recovery nutrition coach and mental health recovery nutrition coach through the Alliance for Addiction Solutions. Marcy Goldman offers feminist health coaching with individuals and group programs called Nourish to Flourish, and a new one will begin next month. Marcy, thanks so much for coming tonight and talking to us. I'm so thrilled to hear what you've been doing and how you've been doing. Susan, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You are so absolutely welcome. I love that you don't believe in diets. What caused you to stop believing in diets? Well, there were many phases of the process. I I first stopped believing in diets when I watched my dad on his extreme diets. I grew up in a household that was on a diet. I think some people can relate to this. Um, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and um, my dad was on the low-fat kick. And I just watched him and I thought, that just does not look right. <laughs> you know, it was that on, on like chicken breast with pepper and vegetables on the side, you know, just food that was not fun or pleasurable. And that was when at a really young age, I decided that I wanted to figure out this food thing. I wanted to eat really well and be satisfied and not... Um, have the kind of relationship to food that my dad did, which was a little crazy. Then down the road, as I became educated and I was picking up books and starting to learn on my own about nutrition, I experimented in ways that I didn't, that weren't intuitive, but were, you know, what I was reading and I thought I'd follow the rules and follow the books and experimented with so many diets and just experimented on my body and really got unhealthy. And then I arrived at your house on the farm and when I was told, you know, before I came that we would be doing it your way when I got there. So I was excited to not have to think about food and to be fed and not have to worry about it. And so I was open and I had already been listening to Janine Roth, who is kind of the queen of of ending dieting. And so I was really open and I had been a vegan and a vegetarian and then a vegan at that point, really, really limited diet. And I just wasn't 
that well. And then we started working and milking the goats and making cheese and making kefir cheese or and making food with our hands from the land and it just and it changed my life. That's my new line, Marcy. Is don't <laughs> don't change your diet, let your diet change you. I like it. Isn't isn't that what we're on about? We don't no I, no I say to people, I don't want you to change your diet. Keep eating just what you're eating. Don't change your diet at all. Just to add these nourishing things and see what happens. Yes. And I you kind of said that to one of the callers, like just live your life. Just have a life. Live and and that's kind of what I'm hearing here too. It's like when you live well and you feel good, you you tend to make better choices, more choices that are fulfilling. And our ancestors never ask, what should I eat? Right. Our ancestors ask, will I eat? I love that. So that's really what's appropriate to us is not what should I eat. I actually do not think that the human brain can cope with figuring out what to eat. That is so revolutionary, and it's it's so the wave of the future, I hope, for people figuring out figuring this out. Is that what you're finding too? Tell us more. Yes. I really um came to learn that just what you said, that when we we've we've got decision fatigue. We've got way too many um choices with food. And Mark David calls it the high fact diet. And it's it's messing us up. It's it's how it's disconnecting us from our bodies. It's disconnecting us from our intuition, and what our ancestors ate. And so we're getting really confused. And I mean, really, like off, really confused for years and years and years at a time. So I lost my train of thought, but I I just love what you said. <laughs> It's difficult, I think, for all of us to keep ourselves from feeling frustrated about food. And that has kind of two arms to it. On one hand, we might feel frustrated because we feel that our body won't tolerate food, that we have food sensitivities. And on the other hand, we might feel frustrated because we feel like there are too many food sensitivities around us for anybody to have a good time. Yes. And what's your take on all mm-hmm. that? Well, food sensitivities are are real and they're not. They definitely um I've I remember I just listened to our last call which was two years ago and talked a little bit about how 
there are real physiological symptoms that we find uncomfortable and somewhat intolerable. And that's a lot of what we call I feel fat. We're really just talking about I don't feel well. And we blame it on our bodies. And with food sensitivities, I think there's a natural inclination when we give ourselves permission to eat and trust our bodies that we're going to avoid those foods naturally. But the focus isn't so much on the elimination. And that's where we get messed up, where we're just like running the list of what we can't eat everywhere we go. And that's what people want to avoid. They're like, I don't want to be that person at the party or at the dinner table that can't eat everything. So, again, when we focus on what we can eat and what to add, we just are naturally avoiding those foods temporarily and rebuilding our gut flora, rebuilding um, our intestinal lining, um, that mucosal layer that helps digest. And so we're repairing our digestive system and and then we find we can lean towards those foods again, and it just is a more natural process. Do you find that there are particular herbal allies that that work especially well that you have? Yes, I definitely um, talk a lot about herbal infusions, and in particular, the more mucousy herbs like comfrey leaf, linden, um, marshmallow root, um, definitely encouraging a lot of those herbs in particular. And I guess I better hurry up and write Susan Weed's mucus-filled diet healing book, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Take that, that Arnold Errett. <laughs> Is that next on your plate? <laughs> no, I'm working on abundantly well right now. But, you know, the truth of the matter is, and I'm sure you know this, Americans have always been food phobic. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. I mean, starting with Kellogg and just, you know, all, all, all the way through. So it does not surprise me at all that we live in a culture in which um, somebody told me that she visited a household and there were three children and two elder adults in this household, and that each one of them ate a different diet. Mm. Mm. I tell you, that that kind of stuff would never have gone in my family home. You know, my mother cooked food for us, and you either ate it or you didn't. She said, "Those are your choices: you eat it or you don't." Yeah. <laughs> you don't have. You do do not have any other choice about food. This is what I made. And do you think that we have, over time, decreased our gut flora, and so children are more susceptible to these sensitivities? I'm not sure if it's simply a matter of gut flora. I'm not sure that gut flora have decreased. Uh, I am rather more likely to think that it is an increased burden of uh, Persistent organic pollutants. Mm -hmm. I know we have been measuring persistent organic pollutants in cord blood and other chemicals in cord blood. I was asking this weekend because I knew there were some midwives. 
and they said that they would look and, and get back to me because I was asking what the count is up to now. The last time I looked, there were about oh, 400 different chemicals being found in in umbilical cord blood when the baby was born. Mm-hmm. So do we know, you know what that load can do, is doing? I don't think we did. Yeah. But but the, again, like where people go to is more elimination, more elimination, and that causes, you know, that is a bit of a snowball effect of more sensitivities. I think so too. Yeah. That's, that's certainly what I see. I know that I have worked with people who come to me and they're not eating this and they're not eating that and they're not eating the other thing. And I say, you know, start drinking your nourishing herbal infusions, give it a month, and then um, let's start reintroducing these foods because it's rare that people have permanent sensitivities. Mm-hmm. I see them come and go, and that's what I offer them. I say, you may have this sensitivity now, but I don't think it's a permanent sensitivity. Right. I believe that too. And you know what pisses me off, Susan? I um, I have been following one of these functional medicine guys. Um, I, I rarely ever um, read his emails anymore, but just today um, I got his email that said, you know, is gluten intolerance possibly curable? And I just said... Oh, my God, you know, five years later, three years later, maybe, um, he has a lot of followers, and he has been recommending this a very restrictive diet for to a lot of people. And I think some of this um, alternative practitioners are becoming the new medical doctors, like, people are putting a lot of faith in their hands. Like you tell me what to eat and I'll eat it. And you tell me what not to eat and I won't eat it. And so I'm glad he's coming around, but I just, it's like kind of like the mainstream nutrition. It's always late. And if he just, if he didn't lead people on that path for so long and he wouldn't, we wouldn't be kind of having to repair a lot of the damage that that's caused now. Two years ago, I did a series of articles called The Ten Worst Health Ideas. And one of the things that I picked out is an exceptionally bad health idea is the whole idea of functional medicine. And at that point, I suggested that if anybody said they were doing functional medicine, that you run the other way as fast as your feet would carry you. So I am not surprised at all to hear this. And I continue to say that functional medicine is very old wine in a new bottle and they're pretending to figure out something for you personally but I think we can see that it's not really that personal at all. It tends to be the same old meat is bad, dairy is bad, wheat is bad, supplements are good. And I will also say that my experience is that people's digestive sensitivities improve a lot 
In other words, they have less of them. The person is healthier when they stop taking all supplements. Mm. I know know that there's a place in my large intestine that makes B vitamins. And I know that when I eat enriched white flour that has synthetic B vitamins in it, that it stops my gut from producing those B vitamins, and I become B vitamin deficient for a few days. I can feel that happening. I've heard you say that, and I just love that, because that is, that's the listening that's possible when we really tune in and stop tuning out. The rest of the story with that practitioner is, I think it was six years ago now, I decided to to seek his advice, and I paid a lot of money, and I was looking, this was before I um, kind of re-found you for mentoring, and years before this, and at the beginning, yeah, it was supplements um, he recommended, and Within two months of working with him, there was um, two kind of emails, attention, alert. These two supplements have been shown to cause problems. They're dangerous. Stop taking them. It was just amazing in that short amount of time. And Yeah, Yeah, that, that really makes you say, wow, what? You know, how can I protect myself? And again, the way we protect ourselves is we don't take things that are in capsules. Mm-hmm. And especially not supplements for which there is no real oversight. Real food is best. I'm sure that you have seen all of the um, studies that have been studying fish liver oil capsules are all coming up totally empty-handed. Fish liver oil capsules, it turns out, don't prevent anything. I have seen that on the periphery, so the cod liver in particular, yeah, and all of that. No, I mean um, supplemental fish oil, just Just high omega-3 fish oil is sold as a supplement. It's one of the biggest selling supplements in the United States. Yes. And so there have been major scientific studies on it that have come, have been finished and the results are now coming out, and the results are, no, it doesn't work. Hmm. Well, I remember in 1998 when we were in one of your barns and Sally Fallon was there, and um, you had, were, were encouraging us to just eat fatty fish and avoid the supplements. So that's what I've been doing. Yes. And recommending. One of the green goddesses said, you may have changed my life in the strangest way. Now she said, I-, I couldn't believe it. The first morning when sardines were put out for breakfast, I thought these women are really weird. She said, but you know what? I ate one and I can't stop. Now I crave sardines for breakfast. <laughs> I love sardines too. It took me a long time to to try them and I have a case in my pantry. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I took a survey once as to um, who people ate sardines with, and the vast majority of people eat sardines either alone or with their cat. <laughs> it 
talk to us about um, your interest in being a food coach to people who are dealing with addictions. Well, I, I like looking at nutrition through addiction lens because um, it's also, you know, the kind of how I, the lens I grew up with. Um, my dad was a compulsive overeater, but really what we found is that he was really just dieting his whole life too. And there's more studies that I have been um, shown that food addiction is not really as real as people were thinking. And it really comes down to the cause being restriction and malnutrition. And that is also the case for people in poverty too, who have restricted limited diets. There, there may be binging, um, that seems like addictive behavior, but it's actually a natural reaction to not having enough. Wow. Yes. Just Which as is, just yeah. as our ancestors didn't ask what to eat, but are we going to eat, when there was something to eat, they ate it. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so when I work with people, it's, it's very liberating to, to help them know that they, they actually don't really have a problem, and it's just a lot of malnourishment that I'm working with. That, the, uh, that, that literally their addictive cravings are in response to lack of nourishment. And, and I would suspect then that you're saying some mental health problems are and that when they become what I call fully mineralized, um, mm-hmm. but I'm sure that for the people you're working with that they're probably their fat reserves and their protein reserves are not as good as they need to be either. That's true, yeah. And, and mineralized too. It's, it's the whole gamut, the whole range. The mineralization, of course, because it's so important for the nervous system and the hormonal system and the immune system. Yes, and I'm so grateful for the nourishing herbal infusions. I are you I just, are you finding yeah. that they are well accepted? Yes, people love them, and they they get attached to them. And I had a woman when I posted today that I'd be on the show she um, wrote a testimonial saying that she's been drinking them for seven years now and um, it's the reason I have such vibrant health even after my husband died um, I'm still vital and well and that was just incredibly powerful to hear it really is isn't it it's so gratifying to hear people say, I did this, and it worked, and I, and I didn't have to do anything else. I didn't have to deprive myself. I didn't have to torture myself. I didn't have to do something that was expensive 
extraordinary or bad tasting. I know. And unfortunately, in the wellness industry, um, the the lure and the, the appeal of a lot of programs is that they're very challenging. And when you get through this challenge, like you have really done something for your health and there's an expectation of, of pain, pain and reward. And, and that's why some of these very simple things are overlooked, but it's, but, but that's why, yeah, I, I just keep sharing them and people keep, coming back and coming around and saying, okay, I'm tired now. I'm ready for simple. Tell us a story about someone that you worked with, um, with helping them um, in the mental health recovery field. You're mm-hmm. a mental health recovery nutrition coach, yes? Mm-hmm. I'm sure most of us don't have the faintest idea what that even means. So tell us a little bit what it means, and then tell us some uh, interesting story that you have about doing that work. Well, I can. One client is coming to mind, and she has anxiety and um, and some depression, and I think. Uh, so many people run this this anxious energy, and I think a lot of it is is malnourishment, not eating, eating enough food, running on adrenaline. Um, and I worked with her um, with herbs to help. You know, just very simply, we started with the nourishing herbal infusions, and we started with herbs, filling her medicine kit of things she could grab in the moment that would help her handle more stress. Like have, she, was, she had three kids under the age of six. So some herbs like hawthorn that I feel like help give her more space, even though she doesn't have a lot of space around her. Um, motherward, of course. Um, she was living far away from her family, and that was comforting. But what, again, it's, it's the mental health recovery is um, feeding the brain the nutrients. It's like you said, mineralization, and it's the brain requires amino acids and nutrients to fill the cups of all those important neurotransmitters. And so... We we work on eating more protein because a lot of the people that come to me were kind of like me who are leaning more vegetarian and vegan. So we talk a lot about protein and which what ways to do that, which is scary for a lot of people who haven't been eating it for a while. But that's scary. That fear is a symptom. So yeah, I hope that is helpful. That's 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 beautiful. And thank you so much, Marcy. It's hard for me to believe that our time is completely up. I feel like I could um, talk to you for endless hours. It's wonderful um, hearing from you, catching up with you. And 
I is Susan Weed talking with Marcy Goldman, M-A-R-C-I-G-O-L-D-M-A-N. Can they find you at Facebook? Yes, I love Facebook. I also love Instagram. It's I-E. Ram. I-E. M-A-R-C-I-E. Okay. Well, on the little information sheet I got, it says M-A-R-C-I. So, oh, okay. Okay. So, so, so my apologies, M A R C I E Goldman. So wonderful, and we have to say green blessings. Good night, Marcy. Green blessings. Good night, Rebecca. Green blessings. Good night, Justine. Green blessings. Good night, everybody. Thank you, Susan. Good night. Good night. Thanks, ladies. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.